So we see that instead of these passages about the rod of iron offering a strong argument for premillennialism, they really reinforce our argument that the wicked are all punished at the same time when Christ comes again and that no unbeliever will be left alive on the earth after Christ comes again. They will all be broken to pieces as the potter's vessel is broken to shivers. A quote from the Basis of Millennial Faith, pages 84 through 90. Hence the rod of iron passages teach that while Christ protects his people, he really does not rule over but destroys their enemies. Resurrection, saints, and men still in the flesh to mingle during the millennium. A curious situation arises when, according to this theory, Christ and the resurrected and translated saints return to this earth at the revelation to set up the millennial kingdom and to mingle freely with men still in the flesh. Some say that the angels too are included. Dr. John R. Rice, for instance, says that Christ comes with saints and angels to take over the reins of world government in a literal kingdom. A quote from The Coming of Christ, page 118. Some speak of the open vision of Christ, or of continued personal access to Christ, or of Jerusalem as the city on which or over which the glory of the new Jerusalem is to rest, like Jehovah's pillar of fire on the tabernacle in the wilderness, or the more awful glory on the top of Mount Sinai. This condition, semi-heavenly and semi-earthly, Christ reigning in Jerusalem with two radically different types of people, the saints in glorified resurrection bodies, and ordinary mortals still in the flesh, yet mingling freely throughout the world for the long and almost unending period of 1,000 years, strikes us as so unreal and absurd that we wonder how anyone can take it seriously. Such a mixed state of mortals and immortals, terrestrial and celestial, surely would be a monstrosity. It would be as incongruous as for the holy angels now to mingle in their work and pleasure and worship with the present population of the world, bringing heavenly splendor into a sinful environment. Exalt the millennium as you please, it still remains far below heaven. It cannot be other than a great anticlimax for those who have tasted of the heavenly glory, but who then are brought back to have a part in it. Such positions of authority and rulership as might be given them in this world would be poor compensation for the glory that they have enjoyed in heaven. In developing their ideas of what conditions will be like during the millennium, premillennialists fail to take into consideration the overpowering majesty of the risen and glorified Christ. They imagine that men will be in personal contact with him as he reigns from an earthly throne. Such a view is based on the assumption that he will again be as he was in the days of his humiliation. At his first advent, he came as a perfectly normal human being. He was then, as now, deity incarnate, but his divine glory was veiled to human eyes. In order to redeem man, it was necessary that he, as man's substitute, should take man's place before the law that had been broken. Hence, he was born as a babe in Bethlehem and grew in a perfectly normal way through boyhood and into manhood. He was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 4.15 But on one occasion, even then, his glory was manifested as on the Mount of Transfiguration. He talked with Moses and Elijah in the presence of his disciples. And we are told that he was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, 
and his garments became white as the light. Matthew 17, verse 2 Even after his resurrection, in order to give his disciples indisputable proof of his resurrection, and while making preparation for the establishment of his church, he still appeared to the disciples in a form that they could see and handle. But when the ascended and glorified Christ appeared to Saul on the road to Damascus, Saul was stricken blind by the light and fell to the ground. When the Apostle John saw the ascended and glorified Christ, his countenance was as the sun, shining in its strength. And, says John, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as one dead. Revelation 1, verses 16 and 17. John was the beloved disciple who had leaned on Jesus' breast at the Last Supper. And if such glory was so overwhelming that the beloved disciple fell at his feet as one dead, how much less shall ordinary sinners be able to stand before him? Paul describes him as the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in light unapproachable, whom no man hath seen nor can see. 1 Timothy 6 verses 15 and 16 We are told of the appearance of one of his angels on the resurrection morning and of his effect on the guard of Roman soldiers. His appearance was as lightning and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him the watchers did quake and become as dead men. Matthew 28 verses 3 and 4 When Christ returns in his own glory and that of the Father with all the holy angels, certainly no mere man who by comparison is but as a worm of the dust shall be able to stand before him. His period of humiliation is now over, and his divine glory forbids the approach of those who are tainted with sin. No mortal man can come into that presence and not be overwhelmed by it. That vision is reserved for heaven. This world and the people in it cannot stand such glory. Furthermore, regarding the millennial state, conditions during that time are to remain essentially unchanged with those who still are in the flesh, eating and drinking, planting and building, marrying and rearing families. Problems of government, education, transportation, communication, health and sanitation, etc. will have to be reckoned with even as they are now. The overall direction of these things will be much more enlightened and efficient, but particularly as regards the unconverted portion of mankind, these will remain real problems. Also let it be remembered that the resurrection saints of all the ages who come back for this kingdom will far outnumber those who still are in the flesh. The idea of a provisional kingdom in which glorified saints and mortal men mingle finds no support anywhere in scripture. When the saints are caught up to meet the Lord in the air, it is said, So shall we ever be with the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 there is no hint of coming back to the earth before the time of the new heavens and the new earth of the eternal state. A return to the present earth would involve either a retransformation from resurrection bodies to natural bodies in order that they might again be in harmony with the earthly environment or reigning in their spiritual bodies, 1 Corinthians 15.44, which would mean no end of confusion. Our natural bodies cannot enter the heavenly kingdom and we may be sure that the resurrection bodies of the saints would be equally out of place if brought back to live in this environment. Paul tells us concerning the glorified body, 
Now this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We all shall not sleep, but we all shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 50 through 54 Paul's teaching here parallels that of Christ who said, The sons of this world marry and are given in marriage, but they that are accounted worthy to attain to that world and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for neither can they die any more, for they are equal unto the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Luke 20 verses 34 through 36 Hamilton points out that if Paul's words are understood as having reference to an alleged millennial kingdom, then this passage asserts that all those Jews and Gentiles who inherit the kingdom of God that follows the resurrection of the righteous will have glorified bodies. There is no room here for the assertion that the Jews will enter the millennial kingdom with mortal bodies, for flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. This cannot refer to the church as distinct from the Jewish remnant, for according to premillennialists, those Jews decidedly do inherit the kingdom. Anyone, Jew or Gentile, who inherits this kingdom in the text, following immediately upon the resurrection of the righteous, will be like the angels in heaven. There is no room for unsaved people in that kingdom, for they will not be present in mortal bodies. Whoever is present will have immortal bodies. There will be no people there whom Satan could deceive at the end of the alleged millennium. A quote from The Basis of Millennial Faith, page 99. Furthermore, in the parable of the ten virgins, that of the talents, and in the general discourse on the judgment as given in Matthew 25, Jesus associates universal judgment with his second advent, and so excludes the premillennial notion of an earthly kingdom. His second coming is definitely set forth as a coming to judgment which ushers in the eternal state. Christ and the saints have resurrection bodies which are not flesh and blood but are incorruptible, glorious, and immortal. How then can they live and work harmoniously on earth with those who still are in the flesh? Burkhoff says concerning this mingling of mortals and immortals in an earthly kingdom, the premillennial theory entangles itself in all kinds of insuperable difficulties with its doctrine of the millennium. It is impossible to understand how a part of the old world and of sinful humanity can exist alongside of a part of the new earth and of a humanity that is glorified. How can perfect saints in glorified bodies live in the sin-laden atmosphere and amid scenes of death and decay? How can the Lord of glory, the glorified Christ, establish his throne on earth as long as it has not yet been renewed? The 21st chapter of Revelation informs us that God and the church of the redeemed will take up their dwelling place on earth after heaven and earth have been renewed. How then can it be maintained that Christ and the saints will dwell there a thousand years before this renewal? 
How will sinners and saints in the flesh be able to stand in the presence of the glorified Christ, seeing that even Paul and John were completely overwhelmed by the vision of him? Acts 26, verses 12 through 14 and Revelation 1, 17. A quote from Systematic Theology, page 715. Years ago, David Brown wrote, What a mongrel state of things this is! What an abhorrent mixture of things totally inconsistent with each other! And again, this system almost inevitably engenders much confusion. The fundamental principle of the system, contemporaneousness and coexistence of the state of grace and the state of glory, of mortality and immortality, of an upper and a lower, a celestial and a terrestrial department of one and the same kingdom. This principle destroys the real nature of both and the things which it places in juxtaposition. A quote from the Second Advent, page 384. The premillennialist seems not to realize how utterly inconsistent is his scheme to bring glorified saints back to this world order. Once the saints have passed through the portals of death, they have attained a state too exalted for any earthly millennium. Regardless of how attractively the millennial state may be pictured, those who have been nourished on the first fruits of the heavenly life can never again find earth life attractive or significant. The heavenly bliss that the saints enjoy is incomparably superior to even the most glowing representation of any earthly kingdom that can be imagined. Not all premillennialists hold these views and there is much difference of opinion among them regarding the outstanding features of the millennial reign. Some have felt the incongruous situation that arises when the holy and the sinful, the mortals and the immortals, are thrown together. Dr. J. Oliver Buswell, for instance, suggests the theory, only a theory, he says, that after Christ returns, his seat of government will not be in the city of Jerusalem, but in the clouds. This view, he says, offers a possible solution to some of the problems that arise in our minds regarding the mingling of the risen saints and those still in the flesh. The theory, he says, is that the central place of the visible government of the kingdom of Christ over the earth during the millennium or the thousand years will be that place in the clouds where he catches up his own to meet him. This is appropriate in connection with those scriptures which refer to the nations of the earth as being gathered before his throne. If his throne is that twisting place in the clouds, then the whole round earth spins beneath the footstool of his feet in his immediate presence, and he visibly executes judgment over all nations. This suggestion does not for a moment deny the specific connection with the surface of this earth, which is implied in Messianic prophecy. The city of Jerusalem will doubtless be visited in person by our glorious Lord. His feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, Zechariah 14.4. The theory that the clouds are the specific locus of his visible government helps to explain certain problems which arise in our minds in regard to the relationship of the risen saints and glorified bodies with the people of the earth who are ruled in perfect righteousness many of whom are ready to rebel at the final apostasy. A quote from Unfulfilled Prophecies, page 81. We do not see that this helps much toward solving the problem. While it may keep the risen saints and the people of earth separate, the idea that the throne of Christ is stationary in the clouds 
while the earth spins beneath his feet, impresses us as particularly fantastic. We confess that as regards the whole idea of a millennial kingdom, we feel very much as Dr. Burkhoff when he says, It is a conundrum to me how they who belong to the church, for whom the promises given to Israel do not apply, can derive special comfort from the fact that Jesus, at his return, will establish a temporal Jewish kingdom on earth, how they can find it a specially consoling thought that Jesus, who after his resurrection was already endowed as mediator with an endless life, and as such could not remain in this sinful world, but had to ascend to heaven, will after his return again dwell on earth for a thousand years, in a world in which sin and death still hold sway and how they can find it a cause for special rejoicing that Christ will again have to descend from his heavenly throne for a prolonged stay on earth, which is still under the curse of sin and death and still a scene of wickedness and lawlessness, of sickness and sorrow, and that with his saints will also, for a thousand years, have to exchange their sin glory for an environment that is not at all suited to their glorified conditions. A quote from The Second Coming of Christ, page 93. Two permanently separate peoples. Still another distinctive feature of the dispensational system is that it holds that Israel and the church are two separate and distinct peoples, and that they are to remain so not only in this world, but throughout all eternity. This means that the kingdom promises made through the prophets were literal promises to a literal Jewish nation which is yet to rule the world as a kind of superstate. Israel is to remain permanently on earth after the church is taken to heaven. Schofield goes even further and divides the saved into four separate groups. Says he, Israel has her place, the tribulation saints will have their place, the redeemed during the kingdom age, the millennium will have their place, the soul that goes out to him in this long period of his kingdom and believes in him, such men belong to another group of the saved. They have another place. They are a new body, the church. A quote from an address at the Philadelphia Bible Conference, 1914, reprinted in the Bibliotheca Sacra, January issue, 1952. Schaefer asserts that Judaism and Christianity are two permanently separate religions continuing into eternity as such each having its own doctrine of salvation and its own doctrine of last things they incorporate he says similar features God man righteousness sin redemption salvation human responsibility and human destiny but these similarities do not establish identity since the dissimilarities far outnumber the similarities the Bible, he says, distinguishes between God's consistent and eternal earthly purpose, which is the substance of Judaism, and his consistent and eternal heavenly purpose, which is the substance of Christianity. And it is as illogical and fanciful to contend that Judaism and Christianity ever merge, as it would be to contend that heaven and earth cease to exist as separate spheres. A quote from Dispensationalism, page 41. Dispensationalism holds that the rapture of the church, which leaves unbelieving Israel on the earth, prepares the way for the literal fulfillment of the Old Testament kingdom promises to the Jews as an earthly people. 
the breaking down of the middle wall of partition between Jew and Gentile was only temporary, only for the duration of the church age. It will be reestablished in the period between the rapture and the revelation, so that this period and the millennium will witness, in Schaeffer's words, the restoration of Judaism. A quote from Dispensationalism, page 46. Furthermore, the seven-year period between the rapture and the revelation, and particularly the millennial period which follows, is on premillennial principles to be preeminently the day of salvation. We may even say the day of mass salvation. For the Jew will then be the missionary, and to the very nations now called Christian, so that the enormous majority of earth's inhabitants will be saved. A quote from the Schofield Bible, pages 973 and 977. In the millennium, the Mosaic laws, the Levitical sacrifices, and the feasts will be reestablished and will serve as memorials. Salvation will be based not on faith in the cross of Christ, which is the gospel of the church age, but on obedience to the king. Surely this is a restoration of Judaism with a vengeance, and surely on this basis the future does belong to the Jew. In opposition to this, we insist that the doctrine that Israel and the church form two separate groups is contrary to Scripture, that Christ founded the church as the true and lawful successor to Old Testament Israel, and that God's purpose with Israel having been finished, Judaism should have disappeared, and Israel should have ceased to exist as a religious body. In the Old Testament, there was no recognized division between Israel and those who united with Israel from among the Gentiles. Rather, those who joined Israel from among the Gentiles merged into the common body. The separation was between this body and the heathen world. Also in the New Testament, the division is between the church and the unbelieving world, not between the church and fleshly Israel. The elect are gathered out of Jews and Gentiles, out of all tribes and tongues and races and nations, and they become one people. There is one body and one spirit, even as also ye were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Ephesians 4, verses 4 and 5. There is but one vine, one good olive tree, one body, one holy nation, one bride, and one holy city whose unity is symbolized by the names of the twelve apostles written on its foundations and the names of the twelve tribes on its gates. Dispensationalism holds that the constitution of the millennial kingdom is outlined in the Sermon on the Mount and that this and most of the material found in the Gospels is kingdom literature given by Christ at the time he was offering the kingdom to the Jews. This material, therefore, does not begin to serve its real purpose until the millennial kingdom is inaugurated. Less emphasis has been placed on this point in recent years, and many, even among the dispensationalists, now reject it. Chapter 14, page 305 The Gospel of the Kingdom and of the Cross a very important question arises regarding the nature of the gospel that is to be preached by the Jewish remnant during the tribulation period. Will the 144,000 preach the gospel of the cross, which is the gospel as we know it, or will they preach the gospel of the kingdom, which offers salvation apart from the cross? 
The 144,000 quite clearly are not Christians, for at the rapture every believer is removed from the earth. Not a single Christian remains. Scorpio says that during the church age the remnant is composed of believing Jews. Romans 11 verses 4 and 5 During the great tribulation a remnant of all Israel will turn to Jesus as Messiah and will become his witnesses after the removal of the church. Revelation 7 verses 3 through 6 A quote on page 1205 Darby indicates that there will be a believing remnant of Jews who go through the rapture and remain on earth after the church has been removed. Jews who look for the Messiah as king but who do not accept Christ as Savior. He says that there will be a Jewish remnant at the close delivered and blessed by the Lord at his coming, blessed on earth, is beyond all controversy the doctrine of scripture. A quote from Collected Writings Chapter 11, page 182. Schofield draws a strong contrast between what is termed the gospel of the kingdom and the gospel of the grace of God. Page 1343. Concerning the gospel of the kingdom, he says, This is the good news that is to set up on the earth in fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7:16, a kingdom political, spiritual, Israelitish, universal, over which God's Son, David's heir, shall be king, and which shall be for one thousand years the manifestation of the righteousness of God in human affairs. He says that there are two preachings of this gospel, one past, beginning with the ministry of John the Baptist, continued by our Lord and his disciples, and ending with the Jewish rejection of the king. The other is yet future, Matthew 24:14, during the great tribulation, and immediately preceding the coming of the King of Glory. Page 1343. He says further, The kingdom is to be established by power, not persuasion, and is to follow divine judgment upon the Gentile world powers. A quote on page 977. And that when Christ appeared to the Jewish people, the next thing in the order of revelation as it then stood should have been the setting up of the Davidic kingdom. A quote on page 998. Concerning the gospel of the grace of God, he says, This is the good news that Jesus Christ, the rejected king, has died on the cross for the sins of the world, that he was raised from the dead for our justification, and that by him all that believe are justified from all things. Page 1343. The contrast between these two gospels is brought out by the statement that the Sermon on the Mount which belongs to the gospel of the kingdom, is said to be not the ideal standard for living in this present age, but to be the constitution for the kingdom of heaven which was offered to the Jews at the first advent. The Sermon on the Mount is said to be pure law. There is not a ray of grace in it, nor a drop of blood. A quote on page 1000. This means that the gospel of the kingdom does not require nor involve the cross. The kingdom as it was offered to the Jews and as it is to be set up in the millennium is a reign of law, not of grace. Dr. Alice has given an effective reply to this kind of reasoning. Says he, We have seen that the most serious objection to the claim of dispensationalists that the declaration that the kingdom of heaven is at hand meant that it could be set up at any moment 
was the fact that this involved the ignoring of the definite teaching of Jesus that the Christ must suffer and enter into his glory. It made the cross unnecessary by implying that the glorious kingdom of Messiah could be set up immediately. It left no room for the cross since Messiah's kingdom was to be without end. It led to the conclusion that had Israel accepted Jesus as Messiah, the Old Testament ritual of sacrifice would have sufficed for sin, that it was only the enormity of the crucifixion which made the cross necessary. Darby tells us quite definitely, supposing for a moment that Christ had not been rejected, the kingdom would have been set up on earth. It could not have been so, no doubt, but it shows the difference between the kingdom and the church. A quote from Lectures on the Second Advent, page 113. The only conclusion which can be drawn from such a statement is this, that the church required the cross while the kingdom did not, that the gospel of the kingdom did not include the cross while the gospel of the grace of God did include it. This we believe to be the inevitable result of Darby's doctrine of the remnant, and we hold it to be utterly irreconcilable with the teaching of the Bible, that the word of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us who are saved it is the power of God. No Jew who in this gospel age during which Christ is preached as Savior rejects the Savior while waiting for the King can be called godly or pious or blessed of God. Christ has died on the cross. To reject him as Savior is for the Jew as well as for the Gentile to spurn the offer of salvation and merit the wrath and curse of God. A quote from Prophecy and the Church, pages 230-232 Truly there is no other gospel than that of the cross. We are reminded of Paul's stern words. But though we or an angel from heaven should preach unto you any gospel other than that which we have preached unto you, let him be anathema. Galatians 1.8 Scorpio says that the kingdom is to be established by power, not by persuasion, and that during that age the enormous majority of earth's inhabitants will be saved. A quote on page 977. This to be made possible because of the removal of Satan from the scene. Thus the gospel of the kingdom is set forth as far more efficacious in the salvation of souls than is the gospel of the grace of God. But Dr. Alice asked pointedly, How will this enormous majority of earth dwellers be able to join with the church saints in singing praises to the Lamb that was slain and hath redeemed us by his precious blood? What meaning will the cross have for those who have attained to a legal righteousness in the kingdom age? A quote from the Evangelical Quarterly, published in London, January 1936. Dispensationalists tell us that the gospel of the kingdom, which was preached before the cross, will be preached again by a Jewish remnant during the Great Tribulation, apparently without change or addition. This Jewish remnant, numbering 144,000, supposedly remains on earth because they are expecting the kingdom and refuse to accept the gospel as preached by the church. A great multitude which no man can number is said to be saved by their preaching. But again Dr. Alice, to whom we are indebted for an especially clear analysis of this subject, reminds us that it is not stated in Revelation 7 that the multitude owe their salvation to the preaching of the 144,000. More important still, 
It is expressly declared that this multitude that are arrayed in white robes have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Chapter 7 verse 14 This can only mean that they have accepted not the gospel of the kingdom, which as defined by Schofield makes no mention of the cross, but the gospel of the grace of God, which is the good news that Jesus Christ has died on the cross for the sins of the world. It will have been the preaching of the cross, whether by a Jewish remnant or by church saints, to which they will owe their salvation. A quote in Prophecy and the Church, page 233. Dispensationalists profess to be strictly orthodox and boast of their loyalty to the Bible, even going to an extreme in interpreting the Bible literally. And yet, as we study their sharp distinction between the gospel of the kingdom and the gospel of the grace of God, we come back to the question, where in the gospel of the kingdom does the cross and the atoning work of Christ come in? Where is there any place for the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies which assert in detail the suffering of the Messiah? Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. Or where is there any place for the truth taught in the sacrificial system of the Old Testament by which the penalty due the sinner is transferred to an innocent victim? If the Jews had accepted the kingdom, what necessity would there have been for the cross? When could Christ ever have been put off the throne and crucified? The fact of the matter is that dispensationalism contains a strong element of modernism, even to the extent of asserting that in the kingdom age salvation is possible apart from the work of Christ on the cross. That man can be saved apart from the suffering of Christ is in fact the very heart of the modernistic heresy and there is no doctrine of scripture that the modernist would more gladly be rid of than that of the blood atonement. To say that during the tribulation period or during the millennium man can be saved by obedience to the king that is by good works is to repudiate the only system of salvation set forth in the Bible. We do not say that dispensationalists do this purposefully or even consciously but we do say that those who make the church only an unpredicted and unforeseen interlude between a past Jewish kingdom and a future Jewish kingdom in which salvation depends on obedience to the king fall into this error. Dispensationalists fail to see that man's opportunity to earn salvation by living righteously, that is, by obedience, was limited to his probation under the covenant of works in the Garden of Eden and that the Mosaic law was not a covenant of works at all, but a preliminary form of the covenant of grace. It fails to see that the church is the fulfillment and fruitage of the Old Testament kingdom of Israel, and treats it rather as something alien and contrary to the divine plan. In substituting six separate dispensations for the covenant of grace, it represents God as repeatedly changing plans, and it represents all of these dispensations except the last, as ending in failure because they are thwarted by the will of man. Chapter 15, page 310, The Jews and Palestine The assumption of modern premillennialism, and particularly of dispensationalism, that at the coming of Christ a Jewish kingdom will be reestablished in Palestine, proceeds on a false principle which is that God still has a special purpose to be served by the Jewish people as a nation. 
but the fact of the matter is that there is no further need for such a kingdom. In Old Testament times there was reason for the selection of a particular people and reason why they should be settled in one particular land. No full revelation had then been given concerning the way of salvation. God's plan of salvation, which was to be worked out through the life and death of a promised Redeemer, required that a particular nation be set aside in which he should appear, and that until his work was accomplished, that nation should be kept separate from all the other nations, which were completely given over to heathenism. The Jewish nation was at that time the exclusive channel through which God chose to reveal himself to the world, the instrument through which preparation was being made for the coming of the Messiah. Israel thus became the divinely appointed missionary nation to the rest of the world. It was chosen not for its own sake, nor because it was a large or powerful nation, for it was in reality one of the smallest, nor because of any past accomplishments, for the original choice was confined to one individual, Abraham, whose seed was to be developed into this nation. Hence the choice really was made before it had any existence as a nation. This purpose was clearly stated in the words spoken to Moses at Sinai immediately preceding the giving of the Ten Commandments. Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then ye shall be mine own possession from among all peoples. For all the world is mine, and ye shall be unto me a nation of priests and a holy nation. Exodus 19 verses 5 and 6 in Old Testament times, revelation was in an elementary stage. But now the Messiah has come and God's revelation to mankind has been completed, written in a book and made available to the people of all nations, with nothing more to be added, and in fact with a curse pronounced upon anyone who attempts to add to or to take away from that revelation. Revelation 22 verses 18 and 19 there is no further need for a separate people or nation to serve that purpose. But until that purpose was accomplished, the selection of Israel as a separated nation and the gift to them of a particular country, Palestine, was all one unit with the other distinctive elements of the system, the priesthood, the temple, the ritual, the sacrificial system, the seventh-day Sabbath, the line of inspired prophets, and the special laws that set them apart from the other peoples of the world. All of this was by divine appointment, and no element in it can be ignored. But since the Messiah has come and has performed his work of atonement, the special role assigned to the Jews has been fulfilled. Hence there remains no reason whatever for the reviving or reestablishing of any one or more of the elements of the old system. All of those elements belong to the kindergarten stage of redemption, and on the completion of that redemption at Calvary, all of those things passed away together. What Paul terms the middle wall of partition between Jew and Gentile has been broken down, and it is never to be built back. Christ died equally for men of all nationalities and races, and it now makes no difference whether one be Jew, American, Japanese, German, Russian, white or colored, he has the same right of approach to God through Christ, the same forgiveness of sins, and the same hope of heaven. We want to say emphatically that when Christ died on the cross, the old Mosaic order died, never to be revived. 
That was the meaning of the supernatural rending of the curtain which separated the holy place from the holy of holies in the temple, symbolizing that the last sacrifice, which was Christ himself, had been offered, and that God was leaving his temple never to return. By that divine act, the old order of ritual and incense, of the sacrificial blood of bulls and goats, of the temple and the human priesthood, and of the Jews as a separate people and Palestine as a separate land, all of that as a unit had fulfilled its purpose and was abolished forever. But while the Jews no longer occupy a place of special favor in the divine plan, this does not mean that God has cast them off. Nothing has been taken from the Jews as individuals. Only the external forms have been abolished. The blessings and privileges of salvation which they enjoyed during the Old Testament dispensation have been magnified and heightened and extended to all nations and races alike. After the Jews had forfeited their rights as a chosen nation, or to put it more accurately, after God had completed his purpose with the Jews as a separate people, they continued to have the privileges of full and free salvation individually. Jews and Gentiles alike from that time on were no longer under law but under grace. Hence there are two and only two great divisions or dispensations in God's dealings with men, that of the Old Covenant and that of the New Covenant, or as we are more accustomed to refer to them, that of the Old Testament and that of the New Testament. Nor is there to be any other until the end of the world. We find a very significant statement in this regard in the words of Jesus as recorded in Luke 21:24. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. The Old Testament era was the times of the Jews. The New Testament era is the times of the Gentiles. Judaism is a thing of the past. It is a glorious memory despite its limitations and its failings, but it can never be revived. The assumption that there is to be a national conversion of the Jews at the second coming of Christ after the close of the times of the Gentiles and that they are to evangelize the world in a seven-year period is entirely unwarranted. The church will be in the world until the end of the age and it is the only agency that God has commissioned to carry the message of salvation. Speaking of the Jews nationally, Jesus said, The kingdom of God shall be taken away from you and shall be given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. Matthew 21:43. And after the woes pronounced upon the scribes and Pharisees, he said, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. Matthew 23:38. Interpreting those words in the light of history, we see that the privilege of being God's representative in the world and of proclaiming the gospel to the world has been taken away from Israel as a nation and has been given to the Christian church. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts is on the web 
at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.